The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome. Welcome to the first podcast of 2022. So Jackie, how are your holidays? Cold, dark, <laughs> fearing <laughs> catching the Omicron, but yeah. other than that, really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy to say I escaped drama over the holidays, unlike many others who I sympathize with in terms of dealing with the pandemic and the cold weather and so on. Although I have to say the cold weather doesn't really bother me that much. I don't mind it. Really? But, Did you actually go outside, Peter? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, it was pretty cold. You know, now that I'm a dog person, I have to walk outside every day in that weather. So I really got to understand the difference between yeah. like minus 27 versus minus 20. It's a lot better, minus 20. Well, where I live, I recorded actually minus 37 one morning. And I hadn't seen that in many, many years. So when you go outside in minus 37, you certainly feel alive. Anyway, here we are. It's now back up to zero. Yay. It's the new year. What are we going to talk about? Well, I think we should start off the year with the big trends that we're going to be watching for 2022. And so we have seven of them that we've identified. Okay. So what do, what do we start out with oil prices? We can't avoid that. They're back up to almost $80 US. Yeah. And after that wobble, when the news of the new variant came out, right, the price dropped down to $65. But it right. uh, seems to think that demand is not going to be impacted very greatly because it's come back pretty strong in the end of December and into the new year. So, you know, what is the future for oil prices, I think, is going to be a big discussion. It already is in uh, the start of 2022. You know, what's interesting is I looked at some very recent charts here the last couple of days and jet fuel in the United States and gasoline demand. I mean, they're basically almost back to pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. You know, the real issue is if you look at international, you're down probably about one and a half million barrels a day on, on jet fuel. However, in a 100 million barrel a day market. That doesn't seem very much, but it is actually pretty consequential. It's really mm-hmm. the difference between a well-supplied market and a tight market this year if, if we were right. able to get that demand back. Right. right. But if this Omicron virus blows through the population and people start traveling again this year, I mean, we're already pushing $80 per barrel WTI and supply and all else being equal, the demand for jet fuel and oil coming back up rather rapidly is going to be supportive of a lot of the bullish comments that are out there. And there are many, aren't there? Yeah, I really look at um, oil prices this year. It could be a little bit like international gas prices in 2021. There was a whole series of events that led to a very tight market. It wasn't just one thing. And I think with oil, there is that potential. Though I will tell you that the IEA, the one that uh, a lot of people watch, are showing that this year looks like a well-supplied market, in fact, oversupplied. However, if things go a little differently than their view of the future, for example, demand is is quite a bit higher Mm -hmm. because people get back to traveling and some of their supply assumptions prove to be wrong, we could very easily have a tight market. We could very easily have a tight market and there's a lot of geopolitical known unknowns out there. We're going to talk about the geopolitics in a minute, but Things like Libya, Nigeria, Kazakhstan events there are really providing a geopolitical risk premium, something that we really haven't seen of this magnitude, I would say, in over a decade. 
Yeah, and then combine that with the views that maybe Russia can't produce much more than they're producing today. We'll see. Mm -hmm. I think the Iran deal is huge in terms of its consequences to the oil markets this year. You know, there's an assumption that and one and a half million barrels a day of additional supply could come from Iran. But it's looking more and more that the U.S. may not make a deal with Iran here. No. And if that supply is missing from the market, that is really going to be consequential in terms of how mm -hmm. tight the market is this year. I think those discussions are going to be long and arduous and probably lead to not much. And so I discount the possibility of Iran coming back with any meaningful amount of oil to the market. Although I also believe that they're selling a lot of their oil sort of through back channels. That uh, mm -hmm. Some of it's getting into the market. It's getting into the extent. market anyway. And even so, we have uh, fairly high and robust prices. But do you want to talk about that geopolitical angle? Yeah, let's go to theme number two. Yeah, theme number two is geopolitics. And this is something to watch. I'd like to start with the Ukrainian situation. The Russians are on the border with Ukraine with something like 100,000 troops in a show of force. There's negotiations that are starting with the Americans in Geneva in terms of how to defuse the situation. We don't really need to get into the details. All we really need to know is, is that Russia is one of the largest producers of oil and gas in the world. And so it holds a lot of cards. It holds a lot of cards also in terms of natural gas supply into Europe. It holds a lot of cards in terms of its membership in the OPEC plus. It's the plus on the plus side of the OPEC plus cartel. So any negotiations do have consequence to the global oil and gas markets. I was going to just say that for the gas markets, there's concern that they could use gas as a weapon here and cut off gas to mm -hmm. Europe as they did in 2009 as, as one of the uh, actions they take. That would be devastating for Europe, especially considering how short of gas they yeah. are right now. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, the U.S. could impose sanctions on Russia, I mean, they've already talked about that as the consequence of this, and that could reduce the supply of crude oil. Yeah. So both of those things could impact the market substantially this year. Yeah, I don't really see how they're going to be able to apply such sanction because Russia is such a big supplier of oil and gas to the world. And the last thing that an already inflationary world needs is even higher prices. And I think the Americans and the Europeans know that. So the whole situation is going to have to be dealt with very gingerly. We'll watch it closely. But it's not only the Russian situation. In Russia's orbit is also Kazakhstan, which has been quiet for a long time and all of a sudden is now seeing uprisings. The Russians were called in to help quell those uprisings. And we shall see because Kazakhstan is something like 2 million barrels a day, I think, of output. I think it's 1.6 million barrels a day. 1.6, okay. It's also a big supplier of uranium, by the way. And the price of uranium and nuclear fuels has gone up dramatically. That's of less consequence than the oil prices going up. But this is yet another unknown in an increasingly uncertain energy security situation. Again, I'll repeat it. You know, I haven't seen this kind of geopolitical insecurity in our energy supply chains probably since uh, oh, 2007, 2008, thereabouts. Well, and then you've got uh, the potential, and who knows if Russia's going into this country and they're going to the Ukraine, could that mm -hmm. kind of change their strategy? Maybe it's too much. Maybe it'll yeah. affect their strategy in Ukraine as well. Right. Then there's a the Chinese equation. Yeah. So the Chinese equation is a little different. I think it will... Obviously, there could be more trade issues with the U.S. this year. 
there's tensions with Taiwan. Could that escalate in terms of how the U.S. Mm-hmm. deals with China this year that could have implications for trade and inflation and, and the economy? And then there's the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, a longstanding relationship. But there's all sorts of friction that's happening in that part of the world as well. And you know, as we mentioned this before Christmas and New Year, and that was the need for President Biden to phone up the Saudis and say, please add more supplies so the price of oil doesn't go up. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting that the Americans are using the strategic oil release as a way to influence global markets, even though it's Mm -hmm. relatively small. It definitely sent a signal to Saudi and to the OPEC plus group to keep adding supply. So that's definitely something to watch this year. You know, the Americans obviously want the market to remain well supplied, have lower oil prices. However, as we were just talking before, it may be that that demand really gets away from us here and the market does yeah, get very tight. Yeah, and and yeah. how does the US react in that case? Yeah. So the demand side, you know, will be influenced by things like interest rates and inflation and drag on economy and so on and so forth. However, the supply side and the known unknowns is really keeping the market fairly robust bias to the upside. And those upside biases ultimately translate into price at the pumps and the sentiment amongst consumers. And that ultimately affects things like elections. And that's theme number three. That's right. So we're really going to be watching some major elections this year, especially in Western countries. There's elections in in a lot of places in the world, but uh, Mm -hmm. the countries we're going to be watching for are ones where we're going to see if people are going to be okay with higher energy costs. And generally, higher energy costs are never good news for politicians. No, no, they're not. I mean, inflation in general, when it hits bread and milk and other essential items of food on the table, and then at the pump and energy costs all the way from gasoline to natural gas to electricity in places like Europe, these are things that tend to create unrest in populations and at a minimum influence who they're going to vote for. So we're going to be watching in November of this year, the US midterm elections, which are going to be consequential to who controls the House and the Senate in the United States. And there's a chance that it's going to flip over to the Republicans. So we're going to be watching that. And that will have consequence on things like all the way from environment and climate change policy to what happens in terms of energy security in the pumps. So that will be one to watch. But there are other elections that are also important as a litmus test for how the populace is thinking about things like inflation, especially energy inflation. There's the French presidential election in April of 2022. And I'm certainly no expert on French politics, but there is the potential for the sentiment to shift to the right. In Canada, we have Ontario and Quebec elections. Yeah, so people will be really watching this one. Ontario, are are people going to stick with Doug Ford? Are they going to look more for a left-leaning, more green party? Mm -hmm. Um, So that'll be interesting. And and it is a test of where a big part of Canada is, since they're such a big part of our population. And then combine that with Quebec. Yeah. So these are sort of Ontario's in June, Quebec's in October. I think it definitely will be a little bit of a referendum on how the pandemic was or is being handled. It's also going to be a litmus test on how the inflation question is being answered because inflation is definitely now, I think, entrenched as an issue and rising interest rates are almost guaranteed in terms of the central banks. And so we'll see how the populace 
reacts to that. There's also going to be an election in Australia. And so overall, again, we're not experts on a lot of these jurisdictions, but what I'm looking for is what the sentiment is in terms of which way the populace is leaning, which way they're thinking about these rising prices, which ultimately trickle down into energy policies, including energy and environment policies like the climate change initiatives and so on. Okay, well, let's talk about the fourth, which is very related to that, economic growth and inflation. That's going to continue to be a big discussion this year. And unfortunately, it's quite uncertain. And I don't think that uncertainty we've been living with for several years is going away in 2022. Just to give you an update, released in December, the U.S. Consumer Price Index hit a, a new high. It was up 6.8% year on year. That's a 39-year high. So mm-hmm. a little bit higher than the numbers that had come out the previous months. And the producer price index was 9.6% compared to a year ago. So everything that a producer who manufactures things has to buy is like 10% higher. Like that's mm-hmm. really consequential. And I think you're going to see more of that filter through into the consumer because you know not all of that is being reflected probably in the price of things today. It, you know, It's a bit of a leading indicator. Yeah. So a lot of the inflation is being pinned on the virus. And yes, we know that that's an issue as how it has affected supply chains, so on and so forth. But it runs a lot deeper than that. I mean, I think there's a broad deglobalization happening as a long-term consequence of the pandemic. And so to get that context, it was in the late 70s, early 80s that the world really started to globalize where Western countries started to outsource all their heavy manufacturing and the building of everything from toys to heavy equipment to places like China and other markets where labor was very cheap. That globalization really accelerated in the early 2000s with the rise of China. And basically, the outsourcing of the economy led to a deflationary period where the price of things really started to go down. Now we're starting to see the reverse, the importance of having domestic supply chains to have security, the geopolitical overlays in terms of things that are happening in China all the way into the oil discussions that we've had. So there's a broader structural inflation, in my opinion, that's happening as countries repatriate their supply chains from everything from food to vaccines to other manufactured goods. And so you've got this upward pressure in prices that I think is going to continue. Yeah. And then add to that higher energy prices and then Mm -hmm. add to that this Omicron, which I mean, there's a debate. Is it uh, slowing things down or speeding it up when it comes to inflation? But uh, I would say so far, it looks like it's probably creating more inflation because it's wreaking havoc on air travel and other businesses due to sickness, right? So that's slowing things down and making things maybe even more scarce and more expensive than before. I know I know that's more short term, but that could still affect, you know, the first half of right. 2022 right. to some extent. Right. But I think that uh, we've also seen a tremendous amount of stimulus dollars that has come into the marketplace as a consequence of the pandemic. That's put money in people's pockets. Money in people's pockets translates into demand for goods. So the pull at a time when supply chains are tight means that the price of things are going up. So the consequence of all this is that we can expect interest rate hikes. Just this morning, I read it's probably likely that the US may have up to four interest rate hikes this year. Typically, interest rates are ratcheted up in quarter point increments. If the inflation is even more ahead of what we think, it can be even a half point increments. I'm not sure it's going to go there, but whatever it is, we can expect 
rates in the US, probably followed by Canada, because we've given the central bank here also the green light to raise rates, I'd say you can expect a, a full point probably by the end of the year. Yeah. And the first one has been announced early in January to happen probably in March of 2022. Mm -hmm. And just to give you some uh, context to where we're at, the U.S. base interest rate is only 0.25% compared with nearly 2% pre-COVID. So Peter, if you're right and you get up to 1% higher, so it's 1.25%, that's still relatively low. Mm -hmm. And you know that this has implications, you're already seeing it in the stock markets a little bit this year. Because up until now, there just hasn't been a lot of motivation to save your money. In fact, you're kind of going backwards because you're only making 0.25% interest, but inflation is much higher than that. So there's been a lot of motivation to put your money into equities. However, as those interest rates go up, you might see more money leave equity markets and that tends to make them weaker. Not always, but in in general, it tends to weaken it. Yeah, there's definitely a reduced appetite for risks. And that trickles directly down into the energy transition because things that are in the clean and green energy world typically are of higher risk, especially the earlier stage technologies. So the accessibility to capital potentially is diminished as their appetite for risk goes down as a consequence of all this. Also, a lot of infrastructure projects in the world of energy are heavily leveraged. In other words, companies need to borrow money. And if the interest rates are higher, it's going to cost more. So there are knock-on effects of all of this in terms of its implications to the energy transition. And we'll be talking about that over the course of the year. All right. Well, let's get on to topic five, which is sustainable finance. I think that was actually one of our looking back on 2021 topics as well. However, I think this is going to continue to take a lot of mind share this year. We have this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. They've announced the initiative in 2021. However, I think in 2022, what we'll be looking for is what are these financial institutions, which are a significant amount, 450 firms, including Canada's six largest banks, are going to do? Are they going to take actions or are they just going to require a lot of reporting at this stage? And and actions, does that mean things like reducing loans to heavy emitters or requiring them to take on big reduction goals? Yeah. You know, just it's uncertain really what they could do this year. Yeah. I think at this point, Jackie, we should probably just diarize this because it's again, it's such a big topic. We did allude to it a couple of times toward the end of last year. I think the thing to do is post on this website the link to the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero report that was presented at COP26 in November of last year for people to take a look at as background reading for when we tackle this subject again. I've gone through that report two to three times, and there are a lot of major implications for energy companies and indeed for corporate leaders in the broad economy in terms of the implications of that. And the interplay between sustainable finance and things like interest rates and inflation and so on is going to be really a topic that is not only complex, but one that we're going to have to try and sift through through the course of 2022 and 2023. Hey, I want to share one article uh, on this topic, though, that I think you might be interested in. It was in The Economist over the Christmas break. Basically, it was talking about the pressure of coal companies to divest of the coal assets. So well, right. many of them are miners of many minerals, right? And so there's been a lot of pressure to get out of the coal. And one of them, Anglo, took a big step by spitting off its South African coal assets and put it into a newly listed company. Mm-hmm. called Fungella Resources. And the uh, shares were off to a rocky start initially. However, those shares have quadrupled in value in a matter of months. 
So, you know, our theory that like by divesting of some of these uh, not so desirable high carbon assets, you're not really accomplishing much. All you're doing is uh, maybe finding alternative investors that would be interested in them. And these companies are going along just fine. Now, the price of coal also went way up and the revenues mm-hmm. of this company went way up because of that. So that obviously was part of it. But it right. really shows that these alternative investors are out there and divestment doesn't necessarily change how much production of coal there's going to be. Yeah. And I think this is something that, again, we're going to have to talk about because the splitting of the universe into the emitters, the heavy emitters, and the non-emitters, by the way, not just fossil fuel companies, is going to create this big arbitrage. Uh, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, has already been talking about it. An arbitrage in the cost of capital is going to create two classes of investors. One class of investor that is, I would call it agnostic to ESG issues, and another class of investor that is following a stricter set of rules around ESG. So how that all plays out is going to be something we're going to be watching over the course of the year. All right. The next topic is clean energy spending. And the last few years have been a flurry of announcements around how corporations are going to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, many of them making 2050 targets, fewer of them, but some making 2030 targets. And the question I have for this year is, are we going to see more action on actual investments to support these reductions in 2022? So, you know, of course, it took a couple of years for everyone to change their mindset, but is that going to turn into CapEx spending? Okay, this is also going to be an interesting area to watch. And we're definitely monitoring how much companies are spending, whether they're oil and gas companies or otherwise. It's going to depend upon all the things we've talked about earlier on, which is the inflation, the interest rates, the cost of energy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also going to depend upon the stimulus spending by governments, which is going to depend upon things like elections, which we already talked about. So everything we're talking about is interrelated. And my sense is that you are going to see more clean energy spending, but that it has the potential to fall short of expectations this year. So it's definitely something to watch and talk about. Mm -hmm. I do think it's going to result in more interesting carbon markets because in the short term, it's pretty hard to make major changes, but you could buy offsets. And we're already seeing escalation in the European carbon credit market quite significant, actually. Right now, mm-hmm. it's trading, a carbon credit is trading about 80 euros versus about 30 last year, and the California right. market's way up. So I think the carbon markets are going to probably see more interest. That's probably going to be the biggest thing that you can measure real time. Well, it is. But if carbon price goes up too fast, and it has the potential to do that, so that's another thing we're going to be watching. But if it goes up much beyond 80 euros into the 100 plus euros, and ditto over here in these voluntary markets, all of a sudden, there's a whole different set of issues in terms of companies being able to, you know, heavy emitting companies being able to afford these things. And the more they spend on carbon credits means the less they spend on actually physically being able to mitigate these carbon emissions. And so there's all sorts of knock-on effects of all these things. And I would just characterize the current situation, given all the things that we've been talking about, is quite volatile and uncertain. It's unstable, you know, from mm-hmm. the geopolitics to the inflation, to the policy, to the elections, to everything. It's really quite an unstable situation right now. And instability speaks to greater risk. And in the financial markets, we're already sort of seeing it sort of more risk aversion in 2022 as we start out than has been seen in 2021. 
Our final topic is Canadian and U.S. policy for clean energy. Yeah, it's going to be a big year for both, actually. And it's going to have real consequences back to how much money people spend on clean mm-hmm. energy. I don't know if anyone caught this other than, you know, real nerds like me, but the mandate letters came out right before Christmas. So mm. Justin Trudeau always sends his new ministers after an election, a mandate letter. And man, this one is really long. I'll, I'll include a link to the one for climate change and environment as well as natural resources. So you can go peruse it yourself, but it's like four or five scrolls down kind of thing. Like I've never seen such a long mandate letter. There's so much in both of these that is expected to be accomplished by the Canadian government. So these are effectively the marching orders from the prime minister to his cabinet in terms of what he expects to be accomplished by those ministers over the course of the year and beyond. Yes. Yeah. I think it's got to be beyond because it's a really long list. Now Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say there was any surprises for me, like as someone that follows this, it was all very consistent with the messaging, but there's just a lot when you look at it, it's really a long list. It's hard to see all of it getting accomplished. I mean, some of the things are really lofty, you know, 40 to 45% reduction by 2030 for industrial emissions. Well, that's the federal target for 2030. They are going to, what's in their marching orders is to come out with reductions for different sectors of the economy, starting with oil and gas. And this is expected in the first part of this year. Mm-hmm. Now, what was new in the mandate letters is it called for uh, a meaningful reduction by 2030. It called for a cap on emissions from oil and gas, but the meaningful reduction, you know, personally, I think a 40 to 45% reduction by 2030 from our oil and gas industry is not possible. It was interesting, Synovus just committed to a 35% reduction by 2035. But to just put it in perspective, CCS is probably going to have to be part of a meaningful reduction. And here we are in 2022. Like it takes quite a bit of time to, well, there's regulatory uncertainty right now on CCS. Then you got to permit your project. And these are like multi-billion dollar projects, right? By the time they're permitted and built, it's a decade. Yeah. So so it's very tight to try to see... Um, reduction that would be in line with the federal goal in that time period. So I think what I'll be watching this year, is this going to be a big fight or is it going to be a collaboration? I think the industry is committed to reducing emissions. I mean, yeah, I I think I'm going to be watching. I mean, I think the industry is committed and we can watch what happens to the oil and gas industry, but this is the year where it goes beyond oil and gas emissions reduction. It goes to all the other heavy emitting sectors and beyond And these mandate letters are not just about oil and gas. No, no, there's requirements for reductions in other sectors, although oil and gas is sort of specifically named. There's many other things like net zero electricity by 2035, initiatives like starting this grid council to work with high carbon regions on transmission lines and how they can get more renewables. Tax credits are expected this year. We've got the Canadian Clean Fuel Standards. So there's just Mm -hmm. a lot of, of initiatives, things like new building codes for net zero by 2050 and building code changes along the way, Canadian critical mineral strategy and how we can create a battery industry, Mm -hmm. just, you know, zero plastics, 50% of new cars EVs by 2030. Right. There's a lot in here and there's a lot of unknowns. As I said, this is going to be a very unstable year, in my opinion, in terms of all the moving parts. There's so many things that can affect the ability to execute on these mandate letters. And those influences are all the way from the other side of the world globally, in terms of what may happen to energy prices and supply chains, to bringing it domestically, how our central bank deals with inflation and interest rates, and then the elections that we talked about 
and how the provinces react to these federal imperatives. Mm -hmm. And of course, across the border at the United States, it's not looking any more clear because over the holidays, the $1.75 trillion Biden Build Back Better plan that got had about $550 billion in clean energy yeah. tax credits mostly, which would have really accelerated the investment, I think, in clean energy and manufacturing in the U.S., is now uncertain because uh, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. So we'll wait and see. I mean, I expect there'll, there'll be something. Um, I definitely think that Joe Biden will want to do something, especially before November, when he yeah. may have less control of Congress. But even if the U.S. doesn't get this in, which would be disappointing, I think there's still going to be some growth in clean energy just due to state-level policies and corporate spending. But I think it's going to be quite a bit smaller if they can't get some sort of bill through. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, that's a long list. It is. Well, yeah, it's only seven things, but a lot of sub-bullets in there. Like We we, Mm -hmm. threw a few things in there, but we'll be watching it all. Hope you'll enjoy following along this year as we cover these topics and many more throughout the new year. Yep. Well, thanks for joining our podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.